I mean, that praise song right there has some great words, huh? Wow. That's really what it's about. It's understanding theology even through song. And thank uh, Gabe for doing the hard work picking out those praise songs and making sure that they're theological also. Uh, you're learning from it. Whether you want to or not, you're learning from it. All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to look at verse 15 and 16, focusing more on verse 15 than 16, but looking at this, not wanting to skip over this particular passage of Scripture. Now, just uh, by way of reminder, uh, last time in Ephesians we learned about the Holy Spirit's activity in salvation. This activity included His ministry of sealing and guaranteeing us full redemption in Jesus Christ. We have the seal of God upon us. The sealing by the Spirit is that once and for all act that gives us continued assurance that we are God's children, entitled to His riches and goodness, now, right now, and as well as in eternity. It's never going to end. It's just going to keep getting better because we're, our understanding is going to be, become clearer. So Jesus Christ has purchased us for himself and has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment that the redemption which has been so wondrously begun will be completed Christ started something in us, He will finish it. So that means that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of a finished transaction and a safe delivery of our whole being to the presence of God. That's where, what the Word of God tells us. So now we look at verse 15 and 16, and let me just read it first. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 15 and 16, For this reason I too having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Now, prayer is the subject of this last section of chapter 1 in Ephesians. The Apostle Paul is overflowing with thankfulness that both Jews and Gentiles have become believers and now have entered the Christian life. He is rejoicing because they're now co-heirs with Christ or co-inheritors, I can say it like that, with Christ. They have been sealed. That means that God's, God places on them his, all, he seals all his followers, identifying them as his own, guaranteeing their protection especially the protection of their eternal souls. And this shows, of course, how valuable God's children are. God's children are valuable to Him. You are valuable to God. You are valuable to God. Our physical bodies may be beaten. They may be maimed. They, somebody may even destroy them. But nothing can harm our soul when we are sealed by God, nothing. Also, he rejoices for the down payment of the Holy Spirit. He rejoices that they have a future hope that all of God's promises will come to pass. So that's something to rejoice about when someone truly gets converted to Christ and all these things are theirs. They don't know it in the beginning, but they begin to learn it but those who've been around know what's coming as they learn the Word of God, and so that is the cause of thanksgiving. In other words, his thanksgiving and praise is to God for allowing the Ephesian believers to be partakers of all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. Now, again, if you place your eyes upon Ephesians 1, in the ESV, it's written a little different. It says this, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord, Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints. So a little bit different, but same thing. The NASB tends to be very literal, 
and puts the definite article before faith, the faith, the body of doctrine delivered to the saints, probably more that sense, but it becomes our faith anyway, so both are correct. So this is a prayer of thanksgiving for the visible converting work of the triune God. He is rejoicing in the fact that others are Christians and are enjoying their new possessions and new position in Christ. And that includes the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, last time, again, I also mentioned that there will be observable effects of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. That God doesn't work in a vacuum. He puts the Spirit of God inside of you. And when he puts the Spirit of God inside of you to dwell in you, you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. There will be visible proof that the Holy Spirit makes his residence inside of you. There will be visible proofs of the Holy Spirit making us God's own. And this is what I mention as follows, that there will be an exaltation of Jesus Christ that was never there before. There would be a continual desire to repent, put to death your sin. There would also be an intense interest in the Word of God. You want to know what God says in God's Word. That's a desire the Spirit of God gives us. You can't not know. You have to know. That's part of what the Spirit of God... And then a grasping of sound doctrine, you begin to get it. You begin to understand not only that you've made a profession of faith, but all that, all that means, all the things that that includes begins to fill your heart and you want to know more and more. But this last one is the one that I... When I, every time I study this particular subject, I am so convicted by it. And it's simply this. A new love for God and others. And you know what? The reason why I say it like that is because I realize I don't know how to love people. And I surely didn't know how to love God. Matter of fact, I didn't. I thought I did. But when I got adjusted by the word of God, I realized I had no love in me at all. Not this kind. This is so foreign to us, so distant from us, that if it's not for the word of God and his spirit indwelling you, you could never know the love of Christ or how to love other people. Can't, you just can't know it on your own. The world hasn't a clue what this says. So I, I would like to highlight this morning the first and the last in this list because they're highlighted in this text. Before I go on to the contents of prayer, which I'll do the, the next time I'm in this text, so it's for this reason I would like to emphasize these two marks of true Christian profession. These two are the grounds of certainty and assurance that only is true of real believers. And what is it? Well, if you look in verse number 15, here's the first one, and it's this. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith, or your faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you. And it's this, the existence of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? That means within the assembly, within the gathered assembly of people, that there is a profession, a true profession, that these people, these people who sit here, have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is not a meaningless statement of verbal belief in God. Just because people say they believe in God does not make them Christians. In fact, Jews say they believe in God. Muslims believe, uh, say, would say that they believe in God. Moral people would usually say they have a belief in God. Religious people would strongly say they have a belief in God. But none of that proves at all whatsoever that they actually have a relationship with God through Christ that they may not be a believer or a Christian at all. 
they just heard some right things and clamped onto them. Say, all this shows is that people have belief in a general sort of way. This says nothing about if they are Christians in the biblical sense of the term. The thanksgiving that comes from the apostle's pen is for those who trusted the crucified and risen Jesus for their eternal salvation. But not only that, if you see in our passage, it says, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, he is thankful for the continuance in their faith. Some have taken the Greek word here for faith and translated loyalty. It is, for example, in other words, that there's a visible corporate loyalty towards Jesus Christ. You know what a loyal person is, right? A loyal person is somebody you can depend on. A loyal person is someone who, what they believe they do and who they believe in they honor. And in this case, there's a visible corporate loyalty to Christ. These people love Christ. It was evident amongst them. And now Paul's probably writing five years later after he'd been in the church of Ephesus. And so some time has gone under, under uh, has passed and some water's gone under, under the bridge and he's writing to them, hearing back about, hey, these people in Ephesus, man, they are serious about Jesus. They love him. And they're willing to give their life for him. So it meant that the Lord Jesus was still their complete confidence for salvation. In other words, they didn't peter out. They didn't doubt what they believed. They didn't add to what they believed, thinking that it needs, needed some help. And they surely didn't cast it aside. They were loyal. They had complete confidence in the salvation that came through Christ because it says there they had faith in the Lord Jesus means that they had no interest in anything else. They had no confidence anywhere else but in him, in his blood, in his righteousness, which was given to them. They were sure about that. And you know what? You have to be sure about it. You have to be sure about it. There can't be any doubts in your mind that you're either in or you're out. You're either a believer, a biblical Christian, or you're not. There is no straddling the shore and the boat. You have to be, you cannot straddle the fence. You have to be on one side or the other. So would you say this morning that you are utterly committed to Christ? Would you say right now that you're utterly committed to him? That you're utterly loyal to him? Well, if you notice in the economy of words in this passage of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit uses his identification of the object of our faith where he says, notice in verse 15, for this reason I too having heard of the faith in the Lord... Jesus. I want to just highlight for a minute this word Lord. He is, in fact, in the Word of God, in the Greek text, in the New Testament Greek text, it's, this word is used, actually it's the word kurios. It's used 747 times. It means Lord. It's also translated master or owner or one who has full control of someone or something. That the designation conveys the idea that Jesus is, is God. That in the same category, he is God as God the Father. And that Paul took Jesus as Lord when he surrendered to Jesus on the Damascus Road. And it says in the book of Acts when he did that, Remember when the Lord says, who, Paul says, you know, who are you? And this is what the Lord said to them. He says, I am the Lord in whom you're persecuting. And so, so Paul says, I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, see, as soon as he met 
the living Christ. The living Christ now became his Lord, his master. The risen Christ became at once to Paul the Lord of his life, his whole life. And so do all genuine believers. They can say in their Christian profession that the risen Christ has become Lord of that, their life. That means this, that sin no longer is their master. No one else is their master. Even themselves have been dethroned when you meet Christ as you being Lord of your own life. Christ is Lord now. He calls the shots. He's the one that you are loyal to. He's the one that you are to obey. See, we cannot receive him as anything but Lord. And therefore, the Lord of our life, a person cannot accept him as Savior, only then perhaps later to decide Jesus is going to be their Lord. No, he has always been Lord. He will always be Lord. Romans chapter 10 we use this all the time when we're witnessing. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. And whoever, what? Will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. See, Lord comes before Savior, designating Jesus Christ as the master of one's life once they become converted. Now, just for a note, the word Lord does mean master in the New Testament, but it's also translated as God. Where in Acts, Luke writes, Moses said, the Lord God will ri raise up for you a prophet like me. He uses Lord to refer to God. It's used to... Uh, as owner, it's used as sir, it's used as a man-made idol, and then it's used as husbands, we're sometimes called lords. But if Jesus is our Lord, we no longer want to continue to rebel against his authority. That's the point. The point is that if he is my Lord, I don't rebel against him. That Christians want Jesus to reign over them as their personal Lord and Savior. They want to submit to him. Why? Because they realize the truth. They realize what he's done for them. So it also says in verse number 15 of Ephesians that he is not only Lord, but it, it uses this designation, and this is not one that should be overlooked. It's, des it's a designation that says here that Jesus, that they had faith in the Lord Jesus, all right? It doesn't say Jesus Christ the Lord. It says the Lord Jesus because it puts him as now using the word Jesus, meaning the human name, and it draws attention now to the humanity of the Lord. That God had to become man so he can die in the place, in our place, and take the wrath of God. And in that, that's in the mind of people when it says the Lord Jesus. They had faith in the one who was God and who became man. And of course, this is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Joshua or Jehoshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. And so his point is that the Savior is one of whom I can say, and you can say as a believer, at the same time that he is Lord and he is also Jesus, that he is God and he is also man. So let me just mention a couple of observations concerning this first mark of a believer that we cannot have the second mark, which I'm going to look at in a second, without the first. In other words... We cannot reverse these. The first must come before the second. Now, what am I talking about? Well, if you look in the passage of Scripture again, it says this, that there must be faith in the Lord Jesus first before anything else could take place. And so that means this, God is always first before man. 
God is always first before man. It is always wrong to put man before God. Isn't this the real problem of the world of man? That man is at the center of everything? That he is everything, and when he is, well, God's left out. And, and a, a great definition of ungodliness is you just don't include God in your life. That's what ungodliness is. That's what wickedness is. Wickedness is God's not a part of my plans. He's not a part of my present day. He's not a part of my decision-making. He's not a part of my family. He's not a part of my job. He's not a part of anything. That's ungodliness. See, and that's what God hates the most is when you live for you. And so God is always first. You're never first. It's always God. In fact, just flip over to Matthew chapter 22 for just a second, keeping your hand there in Ephesians. See, God is always first. And when God takes second place, that is where all the problems come from in life. In Matthew 22, look at verse 36. Of the two greatest commandments, the second cannot come before the first. In verse 36 of Matthew, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, Jesus, of course, speaking, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. In other words, he is saying here, listen, God must come first always. You cannot here love your neighbor until you love God with all you have, not half-heartedly, not with a divided heart, but with all you have. Now, when God is in second place, and not in first place. What usually happens? Well, if you're right there in Matthew, if you just look at Matthew chapter 6, we, we mentioned this a couple times this morning in Sunday school, but in Matthew chapter 6, in 24, see, this is what usually becomes the driving force in our life. It's worry and frustration. People are worried today. They're frustrated today. And the reason for that is because they only trust in themselves. They're not trusting in the Lord. In fact, if you look at verse 24 of Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, it says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate to the one and love the other, or he will devote to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And then it says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not worth much more than, are you not uh, worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, that not even Solomon in all his glory clothe himself like one of these but if God so clothe the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace will he not much more clothe you you of little faith do not worry then saying what will what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Boy, if that's not true, I don't know what is. 
In other words, when God's not first, people live in the frustration-worried realm instead of the calm trust that we ought to give our God who has done this great plan of salvation, choosing us, adopting us into his family. You think God would not take care of us. See, it's a ridiculous thought. It's a thought that ought not to be in the mind of a believer. But do we wrestle with that thought? Yes. Is that thought real to us? Yes, it is. But he's getting at here in this doctrinal section of Ephesians is that God must always be first where before in your life he was never first. And that's a switch in the way we live. A second thing that I want to bring to your attention is that if the church becomes guilty of this reversal in priorities, then not only is the church's survival at stake, but what men and women need the most, the whole message of life will be lost. So when we put God first, we get a right view of everything else and hence when we do our neighbors and fellow who are needy and suffering and poor are cared for sufficiently and properly and they are not cared for just by anyone they are cared for by people who have faith in the Lord Jesus and people who are full of the Holy Spirit of God that means they will be not They will not be taken advantage of or treated as second-class citizens, but treated as children of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that is essential, essential to know what true profession is as a Christian, that the first mark is that there is an existence, not only in your personal individual life, but in the life of the church of a bunch of people who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is first in their life. They are loyal to Jesus Christ. They want his word. They want to grow in his word. And once that is established, and you see that, then it leads to the second mark of true profession. And that's found in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 15 also. He says this, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. You see, you can't reverse that. You can't put love for all the saints without first putting faith in the Lord Jesus. The first must come before the second. See, the Ephesians showed the reality of their faith in the Lord Jesus by the sincerity of their love toward the other saints. So that means, you know what? I can't love God in a vacuum. I can't love God at, just at home alone by not getting with gathered people, not without getting with the saints. Do you understand that? There's no such thing as true profession of faith in Christ without the gathered assembly of believers. Why? This is where I learn how to love you as I learn how God loves me. Do you understand that? I cannot, you cannot learn how to love people unless we first love God. And then when we learn how to love God and we grow in our understanding of that, then we can genuinely love people. But see, we're good at avoiding people. We're good at hiding from people. We're good at being around people that we like being around. We're good at all that. We're expert at that. But we are not good at being around people that are not doing good in their life, who are needy, who are obnoxious, who are a pain in the neck. People can be designated like that because there are people like that in your life and in my life. But when it comes to the You notice what it says there, that now once we learn how to love God, we can love the saints first. So how do we learn? We can't love the world yet unless we learn to love the saints, the ones that have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, the ones who have been chosen personally by God, the ones who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. We have to love them. And that love has to be visible. It has to be tangible. It has to be practical. 
So he is saying here in this text that there must be an existence of love toward all the saints in that assembly. And that you know what that means? That means work. That means confessing our own selfishness and self-centeredness and all the sins that go with keeping us away from people. And believe me, there's a lot, and our culture just feeds it. It feeds it with all this technology and all this texting and Twittering and emailing and Facebooking. It just keeps us away from people. It doesn't bring us into people. It gives you stuff and information about what's going on in other people's life, but it doesn't make you intimate with them. It doesn't, it doesn't cause you to make a prayer list about some of the things that are going on in your life. It doesn't cause you to think, how can I help this person? They're, they're really not doing well, if, especially if they're believers, especially if they're in the faith. See, he uses the word here for love, and it's the, it's the word for divine love, agape, and that word means a thoughtful, volitional, purposeful love that wills to love even the unlovely. Why is that so? Because you and I were ungodly, we were unholy, we were unlovely, and that's who God loves. God loves you and I, and that's who we are. You know, let's be honest with ourselves. That's how God sees us. You are not the greatest people, a person who's walked, ever walked the face of this earth. You really don't have any, much going for you when it comes to how God views you. But at the same time, God's love is such a kind of love that loves even the unlovely, the rebellious, the ungodly, the one who nobody wants to hang around. He loves, his love goes out to them. So this is the highest Christian virtue there is. The very love of God himself working through his people in the congregation. Is that there? Is that something we, no, I'm not saying it like that. It's something we have to work on. But are you willing to work on that? Because see, if you say you love God, you must love people. Not only must this come second, but it cannot be separated from the first. I love God. I will learn to love people. God will teach me to love people. Arthur Pink said, Faith is but an empty name if it does not fructify in love. That means produce fruit. That faith in Christ is only a delusion if it issues not in love for those who are his. If we peruse the book of Ephesians, we would have to conclude that the subject of love is given very high importance. Matter of fact, I was kind of overwhelmed by how much this short book of six chapters talks about love. And so take your Bibles and let's look at some of those. I want to just look at four sections. Not all of them are from Ephesians, but all of them are based in Ephesians. But look at Ephesians chapter 2 in verse number 4. It says this, and here's the first observation that I have as far as what Ephesians says about love. And it's this, that we love the saints, let me say it like this, when we grasp the great love of God for us. We can love the saints when we grasp how God has loved us. All right, look what it says in verse 2 of chapter 2. I mean, chapter 2 of verse 4 of chapter 2. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. So God is rich in mercy. And remember, mercy is uh, God is not giving us what we deserve. What do we deserve? Hell judgment wrath eternal separation from god god's not giving us that why we understand his grace is giving us something that we don't deserve all right so it says that because of his great love you see that adjective there that a great love which he loved us see that is where we start beginning to understand 
how we are to love the brethren, that we ponder and think about how God loves us. In fact, without turning there, 1 John 4.11, which is loaded to it, verses on love, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. All right, it's true that God loves us. So, of course, our first object of our love must be the Lord himself, that the Christian faith is more than just a code of rules, a system of doctrine, a set of practices. At its core, Christianity is a person, and that person is God in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So God is the first object of our love. So we love God because he first loved us, right? Leon Morris said, God loves us, not because we are worthy, not even as something because he sees in us possibilities as yet unrealized. God loves us, although he knows full well of our complete unworthiness. He knows that at best our righteousness are as filthy rags, and still he loves us. He loves, moreover, without thought of advantage, for there is nothing we can bring to him who made all things. He loves because it is his nature to love. He loves because he is love. See, God's love is a love that costs. It is an active love, a love revealed in what Christ did on the cross. So, see, if we were asked this morning what are the true ingredients of living a Christian life it would be the same thing because this was asked to Jesus again in Matthew and what did Jesus say when someone said what was the greatest commandment that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this is the great and foremost commandment and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself these two depend the whole law and the prophets. So the love of God comes first, and God requires love with all the heart, all the soul, and all the strength that we have. It excludes all half-heartedness. It excludes all division of the heart in its love. This always comes first. But you see how you cannot love this way unless you have the Spirit of God. Someone who is an unbeliever cannot love this way. Matter of fact, the whole point of salvation is that now we could actually do what this says. And we don't do it under our own power. We don't do it under the power of God's Spirit in us. This always comes first. Because one can say with the mouth that they love God, but the heart doesn't have to be affected at all. Matter of fact, the heart can be quite unaffected or even disengaged from the words that you may say. And then when, when that happens in the church, there is no thankfulness to be found. There is no love for others to be found. There is no holy life to be found when we do not love God. See, when we love God, there will be an overflow and abundance of thankfulness in your heart. When you do love God, you will love others you, because you look at others way differently than you, you saw them before. See, the world sees people how they look, how they dress, you know, where they work, how much money they make, what kind of car they drive, what kind of house they live in. Uh, you know, how's their family background? All that, that's not how God looks at it. So we start looking at people like God looks at people. You know how I look at people? In darkness, unholy. They don't know God. They think they have the answers and they don't. And you know what? They need Christ. They need Christ. And so you begin to pray for people. You begin to ask God to do something in their life to open up their heart so they would receive you as their Lord and Savior and see what I see. Not You're not looking down your nose at them or being judgmental. You're looking at them as God looks at people and you want them to have the light of the gospel. 
You want them to have it. So I'm, I'm seeing people like God sees them, and now I could have love toward them. And once they come into the faith, once they come into the church, then I can have a relationship with them as a brother and sister in Christ. Matter of fact, sometimes in the church, I have closer relationships with you than I do with my own blood family. And for this reason, because Christ is our mutual bond. Christ is our Lord. We're, we're worshiping him and we're loving each other because of that. And you know what? I want to live a holy life. Why? Because a holy life is beneficial. Not only does it please God, but it's beneficial for you to see how a holy life lives. How someone learns to put to death sin, learns to love God with their whole heart. So see, in this list, in Matthew and in Ephesians, the the list is the greatest is love. That means that the greatest need amongst God's people is that they should be more loving and sensitive and forgiving towards other because this is how God acts towards us who are in Christ. But let's admit, and I will admit this, sometimes we, are, we act ungraciously and unkind from time to time we say and do hurtful things even now and then we are filled with envy and jealousy and every so often we are spiteful and bitter and unforgiving and at times hold grudges and we hold them longer than we should hold them and why is that why, why does that happen as in as in believers life it's because we lack genuine christian love because we have not meditated upon what Christ has done for us. Because where is his love demonstrated? On the cross. All right? And on the cross, what does he demonstrate for us? That his love is sacrificial. That his love is, goes to the extreme. All right? Willing to give his life for your life. Right? That is a love that we ought to have for others. So having settled on the love on love for God we are led to a compelling love for the body of Christ love for the family of God love for our brothers and sisters in Christ we are family the church is not a club that we join it's not a retirement plan we subscribe to or a competition we enter to get a trophy it is a family of love where we are to serve one another and this is possible only because of our relationship with God through Christ. So see, the scripture is, is saying to us, it's crucial for the Christian. It's crucial for any congregation that it is not a take it or leave it proposition. It is an imperative. It's an imperative virtue which gives the gathered assembly power. See, once that is taken place, that's why people said that you'll know them by their love, right? Jew and Gentile and all kinds of, of groups of people getting together in one place, worshiping God in unity, and the world was saying, how did that happen? And Jesus Christ becomes the center person of how that happens. And see, so love of the brethren is the greatest concurrent advantage that is given to the church next to sound doctrine. That means that sound doctrine and love for the saints is power. It's power that a, an assembly has to not only minister to itself and make itself strong in Christ, but to go out into that lost world, into that dark world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, not alone, but with a whole army of people behind it. So see, my friends, if you love Jesus Christ, would it not follow as a natural inference that we would love the bride of his offspring, that if we love Christ as we say we do, should we not also love all of Christ's church, all of Christ's people? Isn't that what our text says? And your love for all the saints, that's not there by mistake. That means no matter who the saints are. And the saints come in all kinds of varieties, don't they? All kinds of sizes. They come with all kinds of baggage. 
They come with all kinds of sin. They come with all kinds of backgrounds. They come with all kinds of wrong thinking and wrong behavior and all kinds of things. And we have a tendency sometimes when we grow in Christ a bit to get our own little group. And our own little group gets together and we like each other. We minister each other. We ought to do that too. But remember, it's never, you know, us four and no more. It's never that. It's us four and whoever else comes into that group. Whoever else God brings that we should love them too. And that means reaching out to them. Christ reaches out to us with his love. It is a love for others that could not exist if it were not for the love of Christ towards us. There's another inference in Ephesians that I've already kind of mentioned already you know, a couple of messages ago, and it's this, that Christians have this love in their hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit, that because we are sealed with the Spirit and indwelt with the Spirit, that love has been put there by God. So in other words, we're taught by God already how to love. Romans 5, verse 5 says this, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So you see that the love has already been given to us. It's already there in our heart. Now we need to work it out. So love can only be lived out with the understanding that Christians have a powerful help they have the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God that's producing fruit in their life. And what kind of fruit is he producing? The love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the gentleness, the kindness, the goodness, right? All those, that fruit, singular, is needed for you to love people, all right? Matter of fact, this book that we're going through, The Peacemaker, everybody should be in a home group learning this book. You know why? Because we have to learn why we have problems in our life, and this book kind of hits it, the nail on the head. So if you're not in a home group, get a book, get in a home group, all right? And let's get studying so we learn some of the problems we have is because we are creating the problems that we have, all right? We are the problem. You understand that? We are the problem. Just as life within the tree causes fruit to appear, so life within the believer by the Holy Spirit of God produces also fruit in our life. But remember this, that we cannot cause fruit to go, grow in our own life, but we are earnestly asked to cultivate it, to weed it, to prune it, to protect it. Only God can produce the fruit, and that fruit is produced right within the congregation. Now, another thing, look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17, and it's this, that loving the saints is the greatest evidence that you are growing in the faith of the Lord Jesus and developing a lifestyle of love. Here's, the, here's uh, one of the greatest ev- evidences. If you look at verse number 17 of Ephesians 3, it says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So see, love is the fruit of genuine faith, and it is the tangible evidence of growing in faith, that this love can increase and abound only as faith grows and abounds. So as faith in God grows and abounds, our love grows and abounds. So its overflowing presence is tangible evidence of a robust faith. The roots grow, go down deep and wide into the soil of love until nothing can shake us, until nothing can move us. So see, in chapter 4, remember chapter 1, 2, and 3, Doctrine, Chapter 4, practice. See, once we get the doctrine right, once we understand what Christ has done for us, once we start learning what it means uh, to love God, and now we know we have an admonition from the Word of God to love people, 
and that the Spirit of God's given to us, then we could actually start doing it. And remember, fruit produces evidence that the Holy Spirit of God is working in you. And if you notice the practice of what you say you believe and what and whom you say you believe in is found in a verse like chapter 4. Look at verse 15. All right, By our words and our actions towards each other. It says in chapter 4, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love. Now, isn't that amazing? That means this. When I grow in my love for the Lord and now I understand I need to love people, you know one thing that God starts transforming? Your tongue. Your words. Right? It says here, speak the truth in love. And then it says, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. In Ephesians 4, verse 15. That means beforehand, we used to get along lying. We knew how to fudge with the truth. We used to know how to, uh, matter of fact, we still do know how to do it. We still know how to use, just to go so far. You know, we like to embellish the truth. We like to uh, stretch the truth. We like to manipulate the truth. But if you do any of those things, it's no longer truth. The Bible is simply saying with the Spirit of God in you, and if you're going to love people, you have to speak to them truthfully. Right? Speak the truth in love. So that means I have the other person, before I open my mouth, before I say anything, I have them in mind. Not me in mind. I'm not trying to defend. I don't want to defend myself anymore. I don't want to, uh, you know, make myself look better anymore. I don't want to do any of those things. I have the other person in mind. And so, therefore, I want to speak to them. I want to speak to them. And, of course, I'm not going to expound this passage now because I'm getting to it later. I'm just letting, I'm highlighting some things for you in the text that will show us that when we love God and we love people, we'll speak truth to them. We'll speak honorably to them, and that's right. And then if you notice in Ephesians 4 and verse 16, it says, from whom the whole body being fit and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself, what? In love. For the building of itself in love. That means you and I, as we speak truth to each other corporately in the body, we are actually building each other up. We're actually doing what Christ wants, to do, wants us to do. So see, my practice benefits the growth of the whole body. Your practice benefits the growth of the whole body. And we can only come, become filled with understanding of his love in the community of believers. We cannot do it apart from the community of believers. See, the, the problem is today, a lot of people are staying away from the church, the congregations. And they're, you know, they're, they're sitting behind their computer. They're saying that the Bible alone, I just need the Bible. I don't need the congregations. There's too many hypocrites in the church so I don't go to there anymore. I don't do that anymore. I don't get involved anymore. I just keep my distance. Wrong. You have just shot yourself in the foot if you believe that way. Or uh, if Satan tempts you to believe that way. No. The only way you're going to grow more in your understanding of God's love is we, we grow more in our, our practice of love amongst the congregation. And then what happens, love starts abounding and overflowing it comes over the top of the glass. In fact, one last thing that I want to mention to you in Ephesians, if you look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 2, remember this is in the practice section, actually we become imitators of God when it comes to love. Look at it, it says in verse number 1 of Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of of God as beloved children, and then verse 2, and walk in love just as, also, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, 
an offering and a sacrifice to God as the fragrant aroma. Here is where the Spirit of God's taking you. He's taking you to act like God. You don't act like God any more than when you walk in love. That means here that your lifestyle becomes a lifestyle of not living for yourself anymore. It becomes a lifestyle of living for God. And the foundation for that, the motivation for that is the example of the love of God in the cross of Christ becomes the paradigm for a Christian love. The great evidence of divine love is the death of Christ. See, as God is love, and we, by regeneration and adoption, are his children, we are bound to exercise love habitually. It becomes a habit in our life. And love can only be lived out by those who have been transformed by the power of of God's divine love. That divine love means, first, a self-denying love, and secondly, a self-giving love. That's why in Ephesians 5, what, do you, what does it say there? It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. In Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. In other words, pleasing to the Lord. So see, this doctrine of the love of God in our lives, it's going to melt into the marriage situation and husbands are going to now learn how to love their wives. But wives are going to learn how to respect their husbands why is that because that's what real love is and how real love is shown in the in the in the in the marriage that when a, a husband loves his wife is that not a beautiful thing and when a wife respects her husband is that not also a beautiful thing i tell you what to god it is to god it's a fragrant aroma it smells good it looks good. And you know what? If that's not what your kids need, a model of how to, a husband and wife are to live together for their marriage, you know? And, you know, I know sin has wrecked things and put things all in disorder. I understand that. But you know what? Even if we got wrecked in some way by sin, we got train wrecked by sin in a particular area, the Scripture brings it all back to give you an understanding that if someone were to ask you counsel on, hey, what is it for to have a good marriage? You can go to the passage. You can tell people this is what it is to have a good marriage. This is, this is how a husband's supposed to act towards his wife. And this is how a wife is supposed to act towards her husband. That's pleasing to God. And see, what does that mean? That we are imitators of God's love that marks us as children of God. So from the church to the home to the world. Well, if love between each other is not growing and abounding, then the tendency is, is that the heart of man misuses people with a conduct not in line with thankfulness or prayerfulness or holiness or abounding love. Remember, the only love that is acceptable is love that encourages purposes that are blameless and please God. And that's usually lived out in the sphere of holiness. So, let's not shoot our legs off from underneath us. Let's not stain the name of Christ by any kind of infighting. Not that there is any, but we always have to be watching out for those things, don't we? And let's not empty the gospel of its power because the power of the gospel comes through the message of the gospel, but through the power of the congregation that 
is exalting Christ and is loving each other. That's, there's a power there that's seen and desired by the world. So when there's no love among the brethren, we're dead in the water. You know, when a seaworthy vessel is rendered dead in the water, it means that it, it's lost its power to propel f- itself forward. And if it does not help us come soon, then it drifts endlessly and, of course, eventually sinks. That's why Paul even says to the Thessalonian church, but we urge you, brethren, to, ex- to excel still more and more in love. Right? That if you're loving, keep doing it. Keep watching out for it. Keep practicing it in your congregation. And God will manifest that love within the congregation. So, the ministry of extending the love of Christ to others falls on us. I'm talking to you today. It falls on you. It falls on me. No one's exempt from this. Even what Paul told in the last, latter part of Romans, he says, Oh, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor fulfills the whole law. And even in Corinthians, eloquent speech without love was worthless. The use of spiritual gifts are worthless without love. Generosity without love is worthless. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. So when does love, what does love do towards its brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, I have to lift it from Corinthians 13. It suffers long. It's kind. It does not envy or promote itself. It is correct in its behavior. It is not selfish. It is not easily provoked. It does not think evil towards another person. It doesn't keep a little black book of rights and wrong or wrongs. And it hopes all things. No one, no one, believe me, no one has a corner on this divine characteristic. See, we all need to grow in love. If I'm growing in love in the congregation and you're growing in love in the congregation and we're putting Christ first and we're lo- learning how to love Christ and we're, we're growing more in the depth on what he did for us on the cross, see, that's going to overflow from us to each other and it's going to give us power to share the gospel to the world. So it's because we're selfish and self-centered that that doesn't happen so a growing love for God will expand and increase our love for people people who are our immediate brothers and sisters in Christ in the faith and I'm talking about all the peoples when Christ saves people he saves them from all tribes and nations And, and that of course happens in the church so I prayed may God richly bless us with real, consistent manifestations of his love. So you and I love when we are thanking God for one another, when we are praying for one another, when we are serving one another, when we are living holy lives before one another, and when we are practicing love to each other that honors God. Now, just to close, turn to the last passage of Scripture in Ephesians. Just again to show you that Ephesians is a book about love. It says in Ephesians 6, verse 23, Peace be to to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 24, last verse of the book. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. You see that? 
So the Bible is very clearly saying to us, listen, grace be to all. May grace shower all those who are in love with Christ. That's first. All right? And then, of course, out of that comes love for all the saints. So the two marks of true profession is the existence of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's always first. And secondly, the existence of love for all the saints. Those two cannot be separated. They must go together. So where do you stand? Where do you need to grow today? I pray you go home, and I pray you really think about this, and I pray that you would really begin to look at yourself, look at where you stand as far as these two marks of true profession and begin to confess sin to the Lord, repent of sin, and then get yourself more active in the lives of other people in the church, in the congregation. Because that's where the rest of our love for Christ and each other is going to start growing and abounding. And, uh, and I, I, I'm not saying that our congregation is not loving. Don't get me wrong. Matter of fact, I think you guys are a great loving congregation. And I'm thankful that when there's needs that do arise, you're on it. All right? And you're taking care of it. And you're ministering to people. But let's not stop. All right? And let's all get involved with that. That if there is a need that arises, it, the response is so overwhelming that we have to say, like in the Old Testament, stop bringing your gifts because these, we have too much. And I, we, we have to get to that point, right? And I think at that point, that's when the love is overflowing the cup. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again this morning for your word. I pray, Lord, for myself. I pray, Lord, that you would enable me by your spirit to be loving you more and growing in that love and we know lord it is your will for that to happen and i pray also lord i may be growing in the love for all the saints and i pray lord that you would give us wisdom as a congregation to know how to express love to people sometimes we don't know but I don't know, but someone else may know. And I pray, Lord, you would help us to share that information with each other so we can be meeting people's needs and encouraging them in the faith so they grow strong, so our body grows strong, and so the strength of the gospel is evident uh, to those who even view us from the outside. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us with these marks of the Christian faith love for the Lord Jesus and love for all the saints. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.